Howdy everybody, I'm Robert, and this is Figure of Speech, a podcast dedicated to the impact of forensics. Episode 14, Danny Cantrell. Danny, welcome in. Nice to have you here, Hello, buddy. hello. It's good to be here. Yeah. Danny, uh, what years did you compete? Now, you competed, um, you, you were telling me before we started recording that you grew up in San Diego. Yeah, so did, I competed from UC San Diego from 1999 to 2003. Okay. And then during that time, did you, uh, did you compete in high school before that? Yeah, I competed only for two years in high school. I actually joined my junior year of high school. And how did that happen? So that's, it's really funny. Um, my friend Mark actually wanted to join the debate team, but he didn't want to go to the meeting by himself. <laughs> so I went with him uh, okay. and um, fell in love with it almost immediately. And what about Mark? Did you leave Mark behind? Yeah. So he actually, he stayed the first year. We were debate partners and we did policy debate. And then my senior year or second year on the team, he left and did something else. And so it was just me left on the team. Did he follow a girl or something like that? It uh, feels like what it usually is. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's one of those cases. And you found your true love, and which I've, was policy yeah. debate. Uh-huh. And so it was great. I mean, I spent the whole summer before my senior year researching at the UCSD library. And I was like, I loved it. You know, it was like cutting cards was the most fun I could have over summer break. <laughs> Um, and then I came back and he left. And so That's I had no a true partner. debate nerd for you there, Danny. Uh, so what, do you remember what your first resolution was? It was U.S. Foreign Policy. Uh, no, it was uh, Renewable Energy. Renewable Energy. Renewable Energy. Because um, my coach at the time was like very well known. Mm-hmm. Um, and he just gave us everything from the Stanford debate camp okay. to use. And so I remember going to the first tournament like having no idea what was in front of me. Or I hadn't done any of the research myself. I was just told to read this piece of paper. Um, and that was really like stressful and difficult. Um, and so that was sort of that first experience. And so what did, let's start with high school. So you, you, you got involved and you started, uh, you started competing. How successful were you? Were you, did you feel like you were successful or not? So very, we, were, or? we were pretty successful pretty early. Um, I remember my very first tournament was the San Diego state Aztec nervous novice tournament. <laughs> and our first two rounds, we just got destroyed, right? Oh, like the worst losses possible. And instead of lunch, my coach took us into a classroom and basically retaught us everything about <laughs> debate. Right. Um, and then something just clicked. Right? I just, I'm like, Oh, I get it. Okay. I, I read these arguments and I persuade this person. Yeah. Oh, I get it. So then we won our next three rounds, made it to the elimination. Wow. Rounds, got an award. I forget which award. And from that point on, we would con- at least consistently break. Um, Were those power matched rounds? I think so. Okay. I imagine. I mean, it was novice tournaments. I don't sure. know if they randomized the whole thing at the beginning or not. But it was fun. And it was really cool to get an award, you know, like early Do you on. remember your first round? Uh, I don't remember my first round. I remember my third round. You remember your third round. You the remember where, winning. I remember when it clicked. Okay. And I, I specifically remember the moment, too, because the, my opponent said, well, why should we believe you? And I remember thinking, you don't have to believe me. Christopher Flavin said so in, ni- in this article. Wow, and I read, reread the evidence, and they're like, oh, okay. <laughs> and then I was like, I just persuaded that judge. So, <laughs> did, did the opponent agree with you? Yeah. You know, we're all, we all knew at that point. Right. They're like, oh, okay. You know, they always tell you, like, your opponent will never agree right? with you. And then every once in a while it happens, and you're like, no, 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 they actually do sometimes. Right. <laughs> That's awesome. So uh, you had some success as, as a novice. Did you, uh, your first year, did you get into like a, an open category or, or yeah, varsity or whatever you would we call it? We did. That? Um, so we were mostly local San Diego tournaments, so mm-hmm. it wasn't too big deal. But we did go up to the Berkeley debate tournament, okay. the big one, um, like in February, mm-hmm. and just got destroyed. Mm. And it was one of those things where I was like, oh, this, this is, is what, what debate is. Like. <laughs> this is very different from what I've experienced in the first round, I remember just looking at my partner being, 
what's going on? <laughs> I don't know what they're doing or what I'm supposed to do. And so we just read it, stood up and read what we thought. Yeah. And the judge was like, you can. And the judge was like, this had nothing to do with the debate. I'm like, we know. We just had no idea what was going on. We're just trying to survive. Yeah. Did you, um, did you watch finals from that tournament or were you just kind of over it at that point? I think we were over. We think we drove home early. Mm-hmm. Like as soon as breaks were posted, obviously, you know, we think we went. Oh seven or yeah. one one six or something. Yeah, we just drove home. So <laughs> dejected, hat yeah. in hand, and like, all right, right, let's try to lick our wounds. But I do remember being like inspired by yeah. those rounds. Like, I'm like, okay, like th- these are really dedicated debaters. Like, I want to be at this level. That's what it's going to take eventually. Did you do any IEs that year? So I did impromptu. Okay, and I did Congress. Okay, I don't know if Congress is considered an IE or debate, but I did those events. Um, yeah, I would say Congress is an IE. Yeah, yeah, and, and I loved it. I loved the idea, and I don't know if this is still the case, but we weren't assigned a side yeah. in congress yeah and i love going to the tournament with both sides prepped and my coach was very much like okay feel the room and go on the side that not everybody is yeah so that we have a better chance of ranking high because not everyone agrees with you yeah you get more chances to speak yeah yeah and i just remember that was so much fun for me like going into the room be like okay am i gonna be pro or con let's see what happens and that was really fun to do i hadn't i'd never i'd heard of congress obviously as an event but i'd never stepped foot inside a congress round until i uh I had the opportunity to judge at a um, middle school national tournament okay. and um, Adam Jacoby, who was kind of like the, the, uh, the Lord of all Congress. And he was running the middle school nationals and was like, Robert, come here. I need you to judge this. And I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing. He's like, you'll be fine. Go in there. Just watch. And I fell in love with it yeah. and was immediately like, this is a spectacular event. Yeah, one of the reasons I like it, too, I wish we had it in college, Yeah, is I love the idea that you could, if you were very nervous, just go and watch. Yeah. You don't necessarily have to speak, or you could ask one question and sit down and be done. Right. And you could get your second round, third round, then maybe give a speech. Right. And I kind of like that a lot, too, about it. It's, it's a low barrier to entry, but yet a high performance level right. as well. And, and you're seeing people who are quite skilled, and you don't necessarily have to be intimidated by them right. because you don't have to argue against them. You could even say, I want to be on that person's exactly. side, right? <laughs> exactly. I remember and, thinking, I don't want him to argue against me. Right. <laughs> I'm going to be on the pro side. And I think that's, there's something missing, I think, from um, a lot of different levels, I think. And I think Congress, it also just sounds so, it sounds so uh, erudite and like this Congress. Right. And right. so I think that has a little bit of intimidation factor with, which is why some people don't want to do it, but right. it's really not as scary as, uh, as you might suspect, but no, I loved it. So you did impromptu. How, how did you fare for impromptu? Did so you? bad. Really? <laughs> so bad at impromptu. Um, tell I, me some good stories. Yeah. I tell the story in my public speaking class. Okay. Um, so I was at a tournament in San Diego and my, ju- my coach came and watched, mm-hmm. um, my round. He wasn't judging, you know, he had the round off. So he came and watched me do impromptu. And I was like excited. So I'm like, okay, he's going to give me feedback, everything. The round's over. I go up to him. So how did I do? And he said, I have no idea, but I know you twirled your pen 450 times. <laughs> so I guess I, I didn't realize it, but I was up there in the front of the room twirling my pen like debaters yeah, sometimes do. Like around your thumb? Around my thumb the entire speech. And all anyone was worried about was if I was going to drop it or not. That's so funny. He had no idea what I talked about. I don't even, you know, I don't remember either. Um, but I learned an important lesson that day Just about don't go up with the pen. Don't go up with the pen. Yeah. Distractions. Right. Fidgeting. Right. And then, um, yeah, I mean, we didn't compete too much. It was mostly debate. Um, but I remember that specifically that impromptu round. I tell my students today, I went, uh, no one ever taught me how to do impromptu. When I first went in for an impromptu, I had no idea what I was doing. And, I remember I couldn't understand what the quotations even meant. I was just so nervous and just beside myself. And I remember at the three-minute mark, I had the letter, Roman numeral 
one, like Roman number one written down, and that was it. That's right. all I had on my note card. And I was like, I, I can't do this. And I had to, I just gave up. And uh-huh. they're like, you sure you don't want to? And I'm like, I have, I literally don't even know what to say right now. So right. I, I, you at least fared better than I did. I do remember it was a little easier then. It, we, the format in that time was past, present, future. Oh, really? Like every single person did the same structure. Wow. And so it was like this in the past, this in the present, and this in the future. And so it was That's sort kind of, of a, a fairly good cookie cutter exactly. formula that yeah. you can just say past, present, future and be done with it. And I remember in college, I asked somebody, can we keep doing that? And they're like, no. <laughs> I was like, oh, we'll forget it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So you, you do some Congress, you dabble in impromptu, but your main deal is policy debate. Yeah. And did you ever veer into any other types of debate? No, we only did policy. Oh. Yeah. I don't know why. Um, were there others that were offered or you? No, it was. So again, like my part, my friend Mark wanted to join the team and we went to that meeting. Our coach said, Oh, there's still people who want to do debate here. Okay. I'll coach you guys. And then we're done. Mm-hmm. So it was just a team of two. So Mark and I were the entire debate team. <laughs> oh, wow. And, um, it was very like, you know, I had no idea what this activity or the community was. So I didn't know about tournaments. I didn't know about debate formats. And so we just did policy debate, uh. you know, a few other events when it worked out. Um, but there was nothing like, Oh, would, would you want to do HI or anything like that? It's expos. Nothing like that. Mm. So, you know, in recent years, policy has has taken a hit in terms of uh, the, the numbers, right? So, a lot of, um, especially high school policy, has dwindled. Do you? A, a lot of that has been attributed to to speed mm-hmm. and to just the you know the 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 language usage as well, and almost kind of like language intimidation. Do you think? How do you feel about that? Do you do you come down on more like speeding as a as an appropriate measure to use in policy debate, or is it? How do you how do you teach it when you teach policy debate, or do you teach policy debate? So we don't do policy uh-huh. anymore either. But I definitely feel like accessibility is important, uh-huh. and I think that any practices that exclude people from activities should be discouraged. Mm. And I think speed can be fun. I remember in high school, I loved it. Right, like I would do speed drills with my partner, and my coach, and that was like a part of the game was to try to get as fast as you possibly could. Right. But, you know, now, you know, so many years later, and as a coach and judge, I can see why it's completely off-putting, right? And if I'll go watch around now where people are speeding or spreading each other out, it's just a bad experience, right? And people quit the activity. And because I think that's of it. Because of it. And at Mount Sac, we stopped doing NFALD for that exact reason. Um, we had especially two students at Nationals. After every debate round, they wanted to quit and go home. Yeah. And that was like such a defeating experience for them that we decided to stop participating in the event because it was hurting their other events. And so it's it's just unfortunate that I think it's practices that are exclusionary are rewarded. Why do you think that that's happened? I mean, why do you feel like debate has steered that way? I, it's a Anytime I get somebody who's done policy debate, I wind up getting into this because I think that that's a really interesting um, shift in the activity. What What do you attribute that to? My theory has always been judges. It's always who's judging the round. And I think at the point where a lot of coaches have not continued to participate in the activity, Mm -hmm. then you start getting judges who were former students. And when you're a former student, you're just fresh out. You do the same practices you were doing, right? And so I remember when I was judging high school policy when I was still in college, of course, I would reward people who were fast because that's what I knew. And I think as coaches, you sort of see the bigger picture and you can sort of say, no, this is too fast. And, you know, it's hard to vote against people who are doing the cool thing. Mm-hmm. And I think saying like, oh, you're too fast makes you as like a curmudgeon judge yeah. and you're not popular anymore. And it's sort of hard to say you're not doing the activity the way I think you should be. So therefore you lose. Yeah. And I think we need 
you know, I think judges need to be more enforceful or more, I don't know, brave is the right word, but just able courageous, to courageous. Like, yeah, yeah. To say like, this is too fast. This is a bad practice. We need to stop this. And what I always tell my students when they sort of want to dabble into that world, um, my philosophy is always if our college president were to come in and watch a tournament round mm-hmm. or even a practice round, would they cancel the program? Huh. <laughs> right. And I think <laughs> what I've seen at, you know, some of these policy rounds, I think they would, I think they yeah. would come in and say, this is what you're teaching. Right? How is this connected to anything real world public speaking? And while I think there are some good arguments that, you know, if you talk faster, you're engaging critical thinking skills and stuff like that. I think it's exclusionary and should, it's unfortunate. Yeah. I think, I, I think too, there's also a, um, I don't know. It, there's not very many real world applications for that afterward. I mean, I understand. Yeah. You make more arguments, more critical thinking and yeah, but also at the detriment to your, your ability to communicate effectively. Um, and, and really it it becomes so exclusionary that what skill are you left with at the end of the day, you know? And, and speaking fast is not a real great one. Right. And actually Uh, on my student evaluations, I sometimes still get, he talks very fast. fast. Oh wow! And so I've had to sort of train myself away from that skill set. Yeah, um, I always tell my debate students, I think you get even more critical thinking when you have less time. Right? Yeah. And if I if I can't make ten arguments, I can only make two. Which of those ten arguments can I make? Yeah, that's true. Which one of the strongest two arguments? Yeah, it all comes out in the wash of like there's critical thinking on one end, but there's right. also critical thinking in another way. That's right. that's a good point. Yeah. So all right, you do uh, you you do debate for the first two years i assume you were more successful your second year in high school like you unfortunately my that's where my partner decided to go do something else uh-huh. and so i only really competed in the fall okay and then about december he decided to leave the team so then i just did congress and prompt you a few times but there was no we didn't do state or nationals okay. or anything like that and so pretty much after about february i was done did you feel how did you feel about it were you okay with his decision to leave or were you a little like man i wish you would have stuck around or what i wish you would have stuck around like especially i did so much work going yeah. into that year because then my coach said his second year he's not going to give us any camp evidence like we have to go do mm. our own research and so i did a you know, whole summer i loved it but i was just cutting cards the whole time and then i was sort of you know sort of bummed to end up not being able to finish that spring semester but you know senior year of high school there's lots of stuff going yeah, on there's so. a, lot of, a lot of things happening there's prom and essay <laughs> you know ac ap tests and yeah. everything so so you and what year was that? What your senior? What year did you graduate? Ninety nine. Ninety nine. So then you go into uh, it, you said San Diego after yeah, that. You see San Diego. Okay, and um, then you immediately take up debate right no, after that. Or um, so I didn't. I couldn't find the team. Um, there was, hmm. it was really impossible to find the team at first. Um, I later found out it's a stu- it was a student run speech and debate team. Oh. So there was no coach, no institutional support. Um, eventually, is funny. I was actually coaching or judging at the La Costa Canyon high school tournament Mm -hmm. and UCSD debaters were there also making money to go to tournaments. And then I met up with them there. Um, And so that was the first time I was like, Oh, UCSD has a debate team. Uh, And so then I was able to join in like January of my first year. All right. So how, what did you do policy debate again or did you something else or how did that go? So we were doing parliamentary debate at that point. Um, I think it would have been almost impossible to do policy. I tried, I tried to, but there's just no way right with the, Workloading, yeah, in college. So we did parliamentary debate, and it was so funny. Um, I like, you know, I barely met these people. And our first tournament's in Modesto, uh-huh. California, which is like northern Northern California, right? Um, and so it's this like nine hour drive in this competitor's <laughs> car, right? Because we don't have vans, we don't have any money. We're all paying for gas, we're paying for hotels, and everything like that. Um, we go to the Modesto tournament, 
And um, I had signed up for Parley and Impromptu. And then we ended up having to drop Impromptu because nobody wanted to go to the tournament that early. Because like it started, it started earlier. It started with Impromptu at like 8 a.m. And the Parley round started at like 10. And everyone in the, van, in the hotel room was like, eh, let's just skip IEs. And so I ended up not <laughs> oh, being able well, to. thanks. I know. I'm not being able to do Impromptu. Um, but my partner and I made it to finals. Oh, that's great. Parliamentary debate. And it was, I fell in love with it. It was, it was such a great activity. And Did you feel like in that moment that that, that parliamentary was better than policy? Did you enjoy? I did. I, I loved having different topics mm. every debate round. So it, just, it sort of came back to Congress, right? Mm-hmm. Where we have different resolutions each debate. Yeah. And I really enjoyed that part of it. And I enjoyed not having to give my whole life to debate, which yeah. I think policy debate would have required. You know, so I think I had one practice right before we went up to the tournament type of thing. And it wasn't that hard yeah. activity to do. Um, I really enjoyed it. And I just fell in love with it. A lower barrier to entry as exactly. well. Did you, um, when you were competing, did you find that, uh, and nowadays I feel like a lot of teams really will write cases beforehand and try to find open resolutions and try to work in their cases. And, and a lot of times you see some of the uh, the spreading happening and the same kind of tactics that, that worked in policy kind of shoehorned into right. parliamentary. Did you see that when you were competing no. at that time? No, it was still very... I, think original yeah like how it was intended more, to be yeah pure intent yeah intention. and so I, I i tell my students now i think you know there's sort of two strategies you can go from the resolution forward and write your case mm-hmm. or you can take your case and go backwards back to the resolution and, right. and figure out a way to fit it in yeah. and i always enjoyed more the going forward approach yeah because I, I hated debating the same thing over and over and over again sure it was just boring it was like in especially with the student run team we were paying our own way right, right. Like, i'm paying for this tournament out of my own pocket and so I want to have a good time when I'm, I'm at it. Right. And so I really enjoyed debating different topics every round. So did you just meet your partner there at UC San Diego? Is that what? Yeah. So we just had like one practice and there were four of us on the team. And so um, I think I got, they probably drew straws or something. And I got <laughs> the, I got the person. Um, and so it was, it was Daniel and I were debate partners. And um, he had actually gone to my high school, which is kind of interesting. Okay. Um I didn't really know him. He was like three years ahead of me. Okay. Um, but so we got partnered up and then the other two people got partnered up. And did you find that he was a pretty good partner? Yeah. Okay. We had a lot of fun. He was all about having fun. Okay. So he was like cracking jokes, every other argument. Yeah. And so I was sort of the more serious policy debater. Yeah. He was sort of more of the fun rhetorical, that's make everybody laugh. Combo. It that's, was. That's a really good combo. It worked out really well. Yeah. So. And so you guys, uh, you, you said your first time you did, you made it to finals? We made it to finals. We lost on 2-1. Oh, split decision. Right, split decision. But it was, yeah, I did it was like, what the, I found my people, you know, I was yeah. so excited just to find a debate. The better team. thing is to be part of the team. Yeah. And mm-hmm. so I was super excited about that. And, um, I still have one of the ballots from that round. Oh, um, wow. Yeah. The judge wrote MO. Cause I was like member of opposition. Uh, you're brilliant. Oh, wow. And I remember, that really, that probably meant a lot to you. Of like, I'm saving this one. It is. I have it in my important files at home. And if it's ever like a depressing day, I'll just you know look at it and be like, oh, that's right. I am brilliant. Right? <laughs> this random judge at this tournament in Northern California told me. Um, and I don't even think the name's on there. It's like all scribbles. Isn't you know? that interesting, though, how like someone can just write it, a passive note almost? Yeah. I mean, whoever that judge was, they don't remember that they yeah. wrote that for you. But that you're saying like that still means something yeah. to you years later. And you're looking back going 20 years later. Yeah. Like that still yeah. resonates with mm-hmm. you. That's really, I think, a testament to how much this activity can really mean to people. And it's not necessarily about, you know, winning a trophies, but, right. you know, I, I've talked about this with other coaches of just taking the time to write a, a couple of just well thought out 
critiques. It could also be like something you need to work on and how that can impact people. And, you know, I say this, uh, I was saying this with somebody else too about how uh, a DI at just the right time in somebody's life and you're trying to win a trophy, but you don't realize what you're saying is having an effect on somebody who's dealing with issues of depression or their dad is uh, dying of cancer or something like that. And you're saying stuff that really resonates with some of these other people. And it's really amazing how much of an impact that it has on people. And we don't even really consider all of the infinite ramifications that happen for little things like MO, you're brilliant. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I, I don't know. I, I know it gets kind of weird and, and, and almost kind of know, flighty, but I, there's something about that. I, I really am attracted to the activity because of it. Right. And I think, you know, as judges, we have to remember that, that students will pour over these ballots yeah. and read every single comment. And, you know, sometimes we have to caution our students like, okay, we're not throwing out your speech because one judge wrote yeah. one negative comment on one ballot. Yeah. Remember, you won first place at the tournament. Right. right. And this one second place ballot doesn't mean we're going to throw away your speech. Yeah. And so I, I think, you know, as competitors, we really do read a lot into the ballots yeah. and judges you know, should be aware of that. And then I get frustrated when students don't read into them. I'm like, no, 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 you need to read these ballots. And they're like, yeah, yeah, whatever. Right. But that's both, that knife cuts both ways. Um, okay. So you, you start doing parley mm-hmm. and you're doing, uh, you're trying to do some IEs, but apparently not being allowed. Mm-hmm. And then after that, that's that season you start doing, I'm assuming more parley. Yeah. So pretty much it just went straight to parliamentary debate after that. Okay. Um, there really wasn't much support. I do remember I did, impromptu at the Point Loma tournament because it was local and I could drive myself to those <laughs> rounds right? so I didn't have to wait for the whole team and I remember I got last 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 place wow like that was when Ouch. they still would print the cum sheets oh. and put them in the packet and it listed <laughs> 1 through 83 and I was and 83rd oh. Oh, <laughs> I think Danny. I took that as a sign to like <laughs> maybe back focus off the prompt yeah and I think it was partly and in, in, you know I think student run teams were great and it yeah. really helped me with my career but I didn't have anyone coaching me. Yeah. So I just would go to rounds and try my best and do what I kind of did in high school. And obviously that wasn't working in college impromptu against, you know, these amazing speakers who, yeah. were, who, um, who have just more resources and, and coaches who are willing to take time out to kind of walk you through it. Right. And yeah. I had done enough high school policy where I sort of knew what I was doing in parliamentary debate and it was, it made sense to me. Yeah. Like I could just sort of intuitively get it and, um, there were a lot of coaches who helped us a lot at uh. UCSD, um, Skip and Conrad Hack and Skip Arledge at Point Loma. We would email them all the time and they would write back to us and John Meany at Claremont yeah. and really help us. And so, you know, Parliament Day was just a much easier route to success and trophies. Right. And as a student run team, we thought, you know, it'd be important to bring back to our administration. Like, look, we're winning awards. We're not just taking the money and drinking or sure. anything like that. Yeah. We're actually being successful and representing the school well. So after your first year, you, I'm assuming you're, you said your debate partner was three years older than you. Is that right. What you said? So, he, so he probably graduates yep. at some point, right? Yep. So then and then we, you're left without a partner. Right. And so we sort of recruited um, some people and um, I debated different, a few, few different people in my sophomore year and it all worked pretty well. Like yeah. we would make some elimination rounds, usually win a trophy or two, but not very successful. Um, and then my third year, um, I, I met a, my partner Clint, who had debated at Glenbrook, I think it's Glenbrook North, mm-hmm. is the high school. He did high school policy as well, very successfully, um, and so he sort of also had that background with me, and he had done well at multiple national tournaments and things like that. And so then when we paired up, then we started being very successful and making it to finals and winning tournaments and stuff. And so walk me through that year. Like that seems, sounds like a, a 
break year, yeah. right? And that's where you're kind of like, okay, I'm getting recognized for this right. at this point. Yeah. So walk me through some of the bigger tournaments. Like, did you go to nationals that year? How did we that did. fare? So that was our first year at nationals, my third year of college. And mm-hmm. um, we got to double octafinals. Okay. And that was like incredible for us. Sure. Right? Like we had never even gone to nationals before. Um, and this was when MPDA was 300 plus teams. Wow. We did partial quadruple octafinals. Wow. Um, and it was just so much fun. You know, we had such a great time. We, you know, it was just a bunch of friends, really, on the debate team at that yeah. point. And um, with partial quadruple f- octas, how many judges are in there? Are they doing three judges? Three judges. That's an insane judge pool. Yeah, it was huge. Wow. Okay. Cool. Go ahead. And so it was just such a fun. And I remember um, you had to go five three, five wins, three losses to advance, and we were four three going mm. into round eight because all the results were posted on the wall. So we had to win round eight. Um, and we won round eight, you know, against our another four three team, made it to elimination round. Super exciting. It's like the first time UCSD had gotten a team out at nationals. Yeah. Um, and then we won our partial quadruple walk to final round. We won our triple walk to final round. And then we lost our double walk to final round on a two one. Oh uh, man. Decision. But it was, you know, so exciting to even be um because that was where in the mix. In the mix. Yeah. And the double walk to finals round was the last day yeah. of the competition. So we were still debating. On oh, that, like, even on that last day, on that last day, the Monday morning round or whatever. Uh-huh. So that was like exciting to still be, you know, there at the tournament dressed up on that day. So now this time, do you go watch the final round? Yeah. Okay. You got to at that point, yeah. right? Yeah. Okay. And that was pretty inspiring too. Yeah. Um, it was about the war in Iraq um, and whether it was justified or not. Um, Cause this was 2002. Uh-huh. Um, and so it was, you know, it was a great debate about something very important in society at that moment. And I was really impressed with the debaters. Do you remember what teams it, it was? Like what schools? I think it was Lewis and Clark in Wyoming. Mm. Not 100%. I know Wyoming because I'm pretty sure they won. Mm. Um, and I think it was like a 5-3 or 4-3 decision. And so it was very, you know, close debate and very exciting. And 350 people watching in the auditorium. Wow. And, is you know an important topic and good debaters who are taking it seriously. You know, I always think it's funny whenever you watch movies or TV shows that depict debate because they'll always have like 350 people watching. And I'm like, no, no, there's very few tournaments that have 350 people watching the final round. Like, they'll be like, oh, state finals. I'm like, you're lucky if you have 12 people in the audience for yeah. something like that. But you know, I I, I imagine that MPDA finals has got to have quite a few people sitting out there. Yeah. At least back this was 2002. I'm not, yeah. I haven't been in many years, but I know it was a big deal yeah. to watch the final round. And then awards was immediately afterwards. So, And then, uh, and then so after that, that I guess it would have been your junior year, mm-hmm. right? And then it, does Clint stick around for you? Yep. All right, so Luckily. <laughs> you've got a partner this yep. time. And you go, you hit it back your senior year. Yep. And how do you do your senior year? So we do well. Uh, it's funny, though. We made it to quarterfinals, mm-hmm. five tournaments in a row. Oh, man. And just drop, 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 drop. All That's the way through. Very frustrating. Um, and it was one of those things where, you know, I tell my students now, I wasn't even nervous until uh. quarterfinals, right? <laughs> Prelims was no big deal. It was we most, know we got this. We got this. Most of the tournaments then were still double octafinals, mm. octafinals. And then they post quarters. Like, okay. You know, and that was probably, it's serious. It, it was probably, I psyched myself out, yeah. you know, type of thing. But it was like every round was a two one, you know, and it's just like, oh, come on. We just have to make it through. Um, that was a tough year. And then it was one of those things where it was again, probably like my senior year in high school, we were kind of done like in February. Uh. Like, eh, do we want to go to nationals or not? Yeah. Yeah. Let's go to nationals. Um, so we ended up doing it and we had some freshmen and sophomores on the team at that point. So we wanted to take them and sort of pass the baton. Right. And hopefully the team would continue past us. Cause again, we still had no coach at this point. It was just student run. That's incredible. 
I've been part of those teams, but usually those teams dissolve. I mean, right. it's hard to keep it student run for that long. Right. And it lasted about six or seven years, I think, after us. Like we my wife and I were both on the teams. Actually where we met was on the debate. Oh, that's team. nice. And so we sort of helped you know, run a tournament and work with the students coming up and it lasted and now it's so exciting that it's come back. So she, it, oh, it has come back. Yep. In recent years, uh-huh. um, Robert Campbell's now coaching UC San Diego, oh. so they're back. That's great. And it, so hopefully we'll have some institutional support, which is exciting. But it is interesting as a student-run team. I sort of learned all those skills of directing and coaching that I right. use now, and you know, it's very helpful for my career. Yeah, I've been part of all sorts of teams. Like in high school, we had a big team, and then in college, we had a very small team to big team and it fluctuated and you know our, our my coaches in in college were very hands-on yet hands-off and you know like I've, i feel like i've had the experience of everything of being part of small and big and medium and um there's something really special about those micro teams that are like two to four people and there's a closeness in this bond especially when they're student run they're like no no no, we're making this happen that you form friendships and these bonds for life right Right. i mean you're you're in a war zone and that's your foxhole buddy and you will forever be connected to this person right and there's something really special about that yeah clint ended up being my best man at my wedding say there you go yeah there you go married my debate partner from (laughs) my second year so so it's really exciting. Um, but yeah, so we went to nationals and it was an, another fun experience where, uh, again, you had to go five, three and we lost our first two rounds. Oh man. Right. So we're sitting Oh two and we're like, this is our last debate tournament. This is my sixth year of forensics. This was his sixth year, you know, or fourth, fifth year of forensics. We're like, how can we not break at our last tournament? So then it was That's like, going to be really, really sad. Right. Yeah. So then, you know, we were like, okay, you know, Stop, get stop a going around, get a grip. So then we, we win our next six rounds, right? <laughs> and so we go 6-2 total. So we have plenty of room. So we get Great. a bye um, in that first elimination round. Awesome. Awesome. But at the same time, I think not awesome. Really? Because I think it really broke the momentum we uh, had. And then we dropped the next round. Right? Was it split decision? or was It, it was. And um, it was so funny because it was 2-1. And one of the judges got switched. And we had prepared for a judge whose whole philosophy was, I love topicality, run it every single round. Uh, Uh, You're not topical until you prove you are, right? And so we're opposition, so we run topicality, and then one judge picks us up on it, and two don't. Uh, and I, I still remember um, Melissa Frankie. Do you uh-huh. know Melissa Frankie? She I know was that name. Of, she was one of our judges. She had judged us, you know, for four years straight in the, in the community. She came up and shook our hands afterwards. Like, you know, I really enjoyed watching you debate all these years, and I appreciated that. And then one judge decided to like lecture us on what we did oh, wrong. Man, there we go. And we're like, uh, we're done, uh, you know. <laughs> but I tried to sit there nicely because I'm like, yeah, mm-hmm. you know, I want to make a career of this, so yeah. I'll, I'll, I won't burn any bridges. But like. I don't need your lesson right now. <laughs> we just had our entire you know, career over at this moment. Like I'd like to go cry now if you don't mind. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but I really appreciate it. Um, Melissa, you know, coming and doing that, like saying like, you had a great career, enjoyed watching you. It's close round. Well, that's nice. Yeah. I appreciated that. So at that point, it sounds like you had already kind of made your mind up that you wanted to be doing this for a mm-hmm. career. Um, where do you go from there? I mean, you go to grad school immediately afterward or? So I had applied to law school okay. and then not got in. Oh. Um, and so I sort of saw that as a sign. Um, <laughs> like, okay, maybe law school is not for me. And You're pretty I, good at reading the signs. <laughs> Let's not do impromptu anymore. Let's not go to law school. <laughs> right. so the universe is telling me not to. So. Exactly. Um, and then, I, like I mentioned, I had formed a close relationship with Skip Rutledge. Okay. And one of his former students, um, Cynthia Laveri, was coaching at Cerritos College and looking for an assistant. Mm-hmm. And he forwarded me her email 
And so I applied to be an assistant coach at Cerritos College, and I called her as she was in labor. Oh my gosh! I know it's like the worst possible timing. Hi, I'm I'm Danny. You know, um, so her husband picked up and said she'll call you back. Hung up. I'm like, well, that's not good, right? Um, But she ends up hiring me as a assistant coach at Cerritos College, and that's did she name her son Danny? Because that could have been a really great. I know, unfortunately, no. No, it's a girl, but (laughs) Danielle. Danielle, yeah. Um, And so that's where I sort of started, and I just fell in love with coaching, especially coaching at the community college level. Yeah, um, because I started. Why? Why the community college level? Because I started working with a lot of students who were on their second try at mm-hmm. college and they were like, and I found debate was like a great motivator to succeed and continue on in college. Mm. Um, and I, and I love that cause I'd never, you know, I went straight to UC, um, I, I hadn't done community college, but I just started working with these students who had, you know, this is their third round at college mm. or fourth round at college. And by doing forensics, they started doing well in school, transferring, getting scholarships, and I just love that atmosphere and thinking that I'm actually making a difference in a lot of people's lives. Yeah. I, I think there's something to, uh, um, it feels like a community college. I, I don't know with the four year university track students, they're a little bit more, they are self-motivated more often and they're not really, they're not always looking for a mentor, but I think there's something about like the community college that they're a little bit more of like, I need somebody to kind of help, guide me through this and that might sound narcissistic where it's like oh i need to be a mentor to someone but that you can take time to establish a bond with them right you can kind of help hey let me let me help you let me actually take some time to help you whereas i feel like some of the four-year university bound students are they're kind of yeah i don't have time to connect with you i've got all these other classes all these other things and i've got all this other stuff to do and you're kind of like okay bye i'll help a little bit if i can and we'll be friendly but we're not gonna we're not going to have that deep bond. And I don't know. I guess I, I get a lot of that out of the community college level. Yeah. I've only coached at community college since. Um, oh, really? So I'm not 100% sure um, how it quite compares, but I definitely would you know, agree with you that I formed many mentorship relationships with students in community college. And it's one of the best parts of my career is, you know, working, you know, still talking to students who I coached on that 2003 team at Cerritos College oh, wow. and, you know, keeping up with them and meeting with them and seeing where their careers have taken them and, I don't know. It is a sort of a different atmosphere and mm-hmm. it's something I love doing and you know, I'm excited to go to work every day and work with students and coach students. That's great. Now you, um, you, so you taught us Cerritos. Where, where else did you teach? You've taught, you you were like a freeway flyer, man. You taught everywhere for a while, right? Yeah. At one point I was teaching at Pasadena city college and then driving down to Saddleback oh community college in mission Viejo in the same day. Right. So I That's drive up nuts. I would drive up to Pasadena if anybody's class. listening to this from uh, that's not from Southern California, just bust out like Google Maps and just do the the mileage on that, and then at, like triple it for traffic, and then uh, you know just <laughs> weep with how much driving you. You've probably single handedly caused a lot of global warming, Danny. That's true. Thanks a lot. I apologize. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I taught at Pasadena, Rio Hondo, Cerritos, Cypress, Cal State Fullerton. That's where I got my master's degree. Okay. Um, Saddleback, and I think that's all of them. And then now you coach at Mount San Antonio College, yep. right? And of course, one of the reasons why I was coaching at so many schools was my impression was you had to be an adjunct before you could get hired full-time. Mm-hmm. Some because they sort of know you and yeah. they'll hire you. And then I got hired at Mount Sac having never taught at Mount Sac. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, well, there goes that. <laughs> well, but one could argue that maybe your reputation right. was part of that, right? And you had earned that reputation by paying your dues in the in the community. And I definitely think I'm, you know, I was a much better teacher. If I, so... 
I was adjuncting for five years. Mm-hmm. And I think at the end of that five year, when I got hired full time, I was a much better teacher, much mm-hmm. better coach than I was five years prior Sure. when I got my master's degree. So I think, it, you know, it's training. It's teaching at a lot of different classes with a lot of different students and different populations. And so, you know, it's, it's a tough life, but it's also, I think, good preparation. Now, one of the things that I would be remiss if I didn't bring up is ForensicsTournament.net. And so you start that with Eric Roebuck? Is that how that begins? Walk, walk me through that. This is a registration site for a lot of tournaments, especially in Southern California. Uh, so walk me through that. How does that begin? Yeah, so when I first, when I was, so I was coaching at Cerritos in 2004, they have a Tabor Vininsky tournament, one of mm-hmm. the big Southern California tournaments. And I sort of assumed the role of tournament director, and it was the worst week of my life. I probably spent 60 to 80 hours answering emails, entering data into a program. I, I'm a big paper person, so I printed every single email that I got and mm-hmm. had a binder three inches big. And I'm like, this is the worst system because it was still entry by email at that point. Like, you know, every change that a coach would do would have to be through email. Oh and then it was just a nightmare. I'm like, there has to be a better way. There has yeah. to be a better way. And so Eric Roebuck actually started ForensicsTurner.net as a way to do web registration cheaply um, because there were a few options at that point, but they cost 500 $600, $800 for most tournaments. And it's okay. just unrealistic for, you know, how low prof- profits we right. make at tournaments. And so he started that. And I always had a background in computer science, computer programming. It's one of my hobbies, things I did. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I asked him if I could join and help him with it. Um, and then he sort of quickly just gave it to me. He was like, <laughs> I think you're enjoying this much more than I am. Why don't you just take it over? And so that was back. So we launched in, I think he launched in 2004, 2005. Uh-huh. And then I sort of took over in 2006. Um, and it's just the web registration system. And it's been a lot of fun. I, I program in my garage on, after work, you know, just as a hobby. Yeah. Um, and it's just fun, something fun to do and, you know, saves that horrible week when we were running the tournament. Now everyone can do it online and not have to bother the tournament director. Um, until, of course, whenever you turn the entries off and then you get the flurry of emails. And right. It changes after that point. Yeah. But. I remember some of the, you know, some of the first tournaments that when I was in college we had run, we were using the old, was it tri- Tripec? Yeah, T-R-I-E-P-C, Tab Room, individual events for the PC. I Just the few tournaments that we ran, I, I've never wanted to punch a computer more because it was so unintuitive. You didn't know where things were. And I... I can't even, if I, I ran a couple tournaments using it and now looking back, if that program were to come up, I don't think I would even know how to do it. I'd be like, what, what was this again? And there were like certain things that you had to just know how to do. And it's, if no one's sitting there showing you how to do it, how do you use the system? And it's one of the things I really like about your software is that it's, um, it's, I could take a stranger and show them how to do it. And in about 10 or 15 minutes, they go, oh, okay, I got it. Like even just... Saying, All right, I'm not going to show you anything. Just play with this, and they go. I think I, I think I got most of it. And they might make some mistakes, um, depending on on what their tournament is trying to do. But for the most part, try that with any other tabs program. Of take somebody who doesn't really even know how to run tab and have them try to run the tournament. And I think this software is the easiest to run and just most straightforward. It's pull down menus. It's hard to goof up. And that's definitely the goal. Um, I ran a few tournaments using the same software, and I had the same experience. Yeah. Um, and definitely nothing you know bad about that software. Like if you knew how to use it, you could be very quick and very powerful. But again, it's if you never... I, I disagree. Okay. I will say everything bad about that. I hate that software. I, 
no insult to the person who's designing it. I mean, I, I appreciate that there is software to do it, right? We're not doing it by hand. But oh my gosh, I was so frustrated. Right. And I think it was just the limitations of computers at the time. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I will speak poorly about yeah. it. But go ahead. And so I remember I ran a tournament and the hardest thing for me at the moment was getting data out of the software, mm. right? So if you wanted to print something or it was just, you couldn't copy paste, you couldn't do anything like that. Right. And so when I started working on forensicsturn.net, my decision to make it web-based was that you could very easily, if something goes wrong, copy paste, throw it into word, make the edits, print, you're good to go. Yeah. And so that's sort of one of my guiding principles has been, and then definitely to try to make it as intuitive as possible to streamline it, streamline it because you know, given how many tournaments you and I both run, we know it's very stressful. Sure. It's easy to make mistakes. And so the less chance of that happening, the better. And that's always one of my main goals in designing the software. And it's good because I use it when I run tournaments. Right. And so I can see the pain points and then go home and try to fix those afterwards. What have been some of the challenges that you've had as you've put it together? Because um, it started out as, um, as well, the registration was forensicsterm.net. And then used everything tab to actually do the tabulation. Is that correct? Correct. And that was sort of the idea that at the time when I did everything tab, people were still using other registration systems. Mm -hmm. And I thought, okay, if you're still, if you're doing by email, then you, when you bring the data into everything tab.com, it sort of makes sense. Mm -hmm. But then it sort of, people started using both all the time and it's sort of more difficult because it was separated. Mm -hmm. um, so then last couple of summers, I tried to integrate them back again. Um, and I would just say, you know, one of the big challenges has just been finding time to work on the site. Yeah. It's, it's hard. I, I still teach full time. I have a family. Um, it's fun to do, but it's also just difficult. Um, yeah. But, you know, I enjoy it, but it's also just sort of a labor. How, the point. If you had to say, if somebody put a gun to your head and said, how many hours have you spent trying to design it? How many hours? Do you think you've crossed over 10,000 hours? Doing oh, easily. It? Yeah. I mean, most summers I would spend coding and it would be a full-time job. You know, it'd be 40, 50, 60 hours a week. Wow, that's crazy. Yeah. And then, so a couple summers I haven't taught and I've worked on the site instead. And it would be, you know, as soon as my kids go down to bed about 8, 30, 9 o'clock, I'll go up to the garage and I'll be up till midnight, 2 a.m. Are you a night owl? I am. Yeah, because I've, I've gotten emails from you at like 2 a.m. And I'm like, this guy's a night owl. Yeah. I like it. Yeah. yeah. So it, it's fun. You know, I, like, I like the challenge of it. That's, yeah. that's sort of my... my, my real enjoyment is, okay, how do we solve this problem? Yeah. Right? And so, um, you know, one of the hardest thing has been the IE sectioning. Mm -hmm. It's just, I pull some of my hair out trying to figure out how to program to do it. And mm -hmm. it's one of those things where it's kind of easy if you're just doing it by hand, but how to make a program, put the person in the right spot. Yeah. It's just so hard. And I've made so many mistakes on it. So I apologize. <laughs> well, <laughs> I mean, I, I don't think any tabulation system is perfect, right? I mean, they're, they're, they all have their pluses and minuses. Right. Uh, I certainly like yours the most, and I, I think what always impressed me the most was when you were getting ready to go live with uh, with Everything Tab. I remember we had a big tournament coming up, and we said, we want to do something really weird where we have uh, one judge for prelim for all these events, except for this one event, we want two judges in the prelims, and you're like, I can do that. I can make that happen. And I was like, all right, I'm sold. I'm already right. sold. The fact that you're like, yeah, I can make that happen for you, and I was like... Done. Right. I do like the challenge of it. Right? Yeah. That's, that's one of the fun things about programming is come, coming up with solutions yeah. and figuring it out. And I'm a very iterative type of person. Like when I coach speech events, it's very much like just get a rough draft done, get a rough draft done, get it to the tournament. We'll make edits, we'll make edits, we'll make edits. And that's what I sort of like about programming too. Mm. Is, you know, I can put a first draft 
out there. And then I think like, you know, for your debate pairing system, mm-hmm. it's like a little bit wrong. Right. right. So, so you give me some feedback and make a change. We'll try it again. We'll make a change and make it, And then eventually it's working as expected. And that's, you know, sort of how I approach speech and how I approach programming as well. Wow. That's uh, I, the number of hours that you must spend just on stuff that I send you because right. I send you, I know I send you a tournament will happen. And I'll be like, here's seven emails of like, Hey, add this feature. Think about this. What about those? Hey, what about these? And I know you got to be like, okay, Robert, ease up. But uh, no, it's, it's the exact opposite. It's like, it's one of the things where it's, it's so nice to get feedback yeah. and to see like, okay, here's the pain, you know, like I said, here's the pain point. Like here's something that's causing a problem at the tournament or causing a delay. Like if I can just solve this, then your tournament runs smoother. There'll be less problems. And you know, if it's happening to you, it's happening to everybody. And so I appreciate, you know, getting feedback from people who use the site. I suppose it is more frustrating when there is no feedback and it's just kind of like, well, how did it go? Like, I mean, what's exactly. what are the problems? It's like, it's like speech, right? It's like sure. If you get the ballot, great right. round. Five, I guess you're right. Yeah. Five fifteen, <laughs> Great speech. Like, well, thanks. You know? <laughs> I guess I, I, that hurts. Right. Yeah. So let's talk about coaching for a minute. So, uh, you've coached at Mount Sac for four years. This is my ninth year. Ninth year. I know it goes so quick. Oh my gosh. Oh my goodness. It feels like you you just started there a while back. All right, nine years. Yeah. Wow. Okay, well, what's that been like? Have you enjoyed it's, being there? I really, really have. Yeah. Um, when I got hired, they sort of asked me what I was feeling and everything like that. Um, and I felt like I got drafted to the major leagues. You know, like I really felt like Mount Sac was like the major league. Yeah. Like national championship. Yeah, you know, they just had won nationals the year before right. when I got hired. So it's like, oh, so stressful, you know, to come into a team that wins, wins nationals. But I just I love it there. It's it's great. Like the institutional support is amazing. Our you know vice president of instruction, dean, president, they all love forensics. They all support us. And I just I really love being in an environment where excellence is important, right? Where mm-hmm. but there's an expectation that the students will work hard mm-hmm. and and be not necessarily be successful, but you know just kind of follows from mm-hmm. it. But you know where the goal every season is winning nationals is something that I just thrive under. Like I absolutely love it. Do you, I mean, you, Mount, Mount Sac for a while, they were winning AFA, not just Fire Pi, but they were crushing it even at the four year mm-hmm. col- college level, which is un- very unusual for community college. And, um, have they gone back to AFA in a while? Like, it seems like once a decade they go to AFA and just, okay, this is going to be our year. Right. My understanding, that was before I got there. Okay. Um, my understanding was they had won Fire Pi like two years in a row. Right. And the, the year they won it, they have 200 points, right? Like massive yeah. victory. So they said, well, let's try something new next year and try AFA and things like that. And then they're very successful there. But we just haven't really had the drive to do that. Um, yeah. It's a little bit harder, I think, with travel budgets now um, and with students, their pressures on their time. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if it's the same or different as before, but it's we did NFA last year because it was in um, Santa Ana. Sure. And even calling you know, calling for that's not too hard, but we, we set AFA quals as the standard. Oh, okay. So our students had to call for AFA in order to attend N- NFA. Nice. And it was kind of tough on a lot of them yeah. to get to that number of tournaments as required um, type of thing with jobs and families and school. Yeah. And, and I'm sure that's the same as it's always been, but um, yeah, we really haven't had that interest or desire. Um, NFA was a great experience for them. They loved it. And I imagine if it was local again, we would compete again in mm-hmm. FA. But you know, I I personally love Fire Pie, and so my vote has always been let's do Fire Pie this year. Um, I love the tournament, I love the experience. What do you like about it? I really like that it's longer mm-hmm. than most tournaments, and so I always feel like it's not rushed. 
Um, and so like you can judge around and then like relax for 15, 20 minutes before your next round starts. And sure. I've always enjoyed that as a judge and coach perspective. And then I do love that the students really mix with each other at Pyro Pie. Um, that's what my, my impression is at least that they really meet people from other parts of the country. Mm-hmm. And I've always liked that too, that they actually like, get friends out of going to Pyro Pie. Mm. I know too, one of the things that I liked when, when I went to Pyro Pie, one of the things that, um, and I guess uh, the state level does this too for community college states. Uh, at least they used to for Parley. When you're working on Parley, when you're prepping Parley, you had to work with just your partner. Do they still have that requirement? Yes. Uh-huh. And I really like that. I yeah. think that's, that kind of balances everything out a little bit. Like it, you shouldn't be, um, I don't know. I get the idea of a coach being involved, but I like for parliamentary, Hey, you and your partner, what can you think of? Right. And not your coach, not your, the, the better team on your, on, you know, on your school feeding you information and arguments, but what are your arguments? What are your thoughts? And right. I really like that, that quality. I wish that something that more tournaments kind of held to, I, I've, I've always kind of admired that. I understand that there's a place for right. coach involvement too. And maybe you need to, to work off of coaches before you can get to state and, and nationals where that's more the requirement. But uh, I've always kind of admired that. I've always thought that was a really cool quality. Yeah, that was pretty much the norm when I competed. Um, there was very oh, really? little coaching. Um, I don't know if it was... Well, you were from a student-run team, right. so of course it was that way. <laughs> but even like our competitors right, oh, okay. weren't being fed art cases by coaches or team members or anything like that. And it is one of those things where you know, I, I've tried to do that more with my students, mm-hmm. where like especially once spring starts, I, I won't coach them at all. Like They got to figure it out on their own. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of those lasting skills they, they gain is how to prepare a case in 20 minutes. Yeah. And, pull together ideas and organize them and find arguments that are persuasive in such a short amount of time that, you know, 10 years later in your job, you might have to do something similar. Sure. And so I definitely, but you will have to do something. Exactly. Similar. Yeah. And so that is something I, I love about fire pie as well. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, Danny, this next part of the podcast, I call the final round, right? So these are a bunch of survey questions that I'm going to ask you. Uh, let's start with question number one. These are 10 questions that we ask every guest that comes on the show. Question number one, were you superstitious? Yes. In what way? Um, I had to wear a blue shirt. A, you only wore blue shirts? I only wore blue shirts That's when so I competed. Awesome. And we were at a high school demonstration round, and uh-huh. a student was asking a question, trying to figure out how to recognize which team. He's like, the team in blue. <laughs> Did everybody wear blue shirts on your team? No, just my partner. And I, I don't even think he had that superstition. But for me, I always wore a light blue or a blue dress shirt. Wow. And I don't know. I don't even know if I knew at the time. But looking back on looking, it, was? yeah, and it's just one of those things where it's like I felt like that color was the right color to wear, you know, to be calm or something. That's in front great. of the judges. And do so, you do you find yourself like as you dress up in suits now? Do you find yourself gravitating more towards the blue shirts? I do, and blue ties. It's that's like my so entire great. tie collection is blue. So. That's so awesome. All right, question number two: Who is the competitor you most admired? Audrey Mink. Wow, uh, how fast you yeah, answered that? Cal State Long Beach. Okay, she just she was. I don't know if it's the nemesis because we always lost to her, right? Mm-hmm. So like it wasn't rivals because she would never lose to us. But I was always so impressed with how eloquent she was. And she she did debate and IEs mm-hmm. and won multiple AFA, I believe, mm-hmm. AFA titles and also was an amazing debater. And that was always something very impressive to me that mm-hmm. you could strat- do both worlds and be successful in both worlds. Um, and the one tournament my partner I won, we beat her and her partner in finals. And it was just like, I'm good. I'm good. Done. <laughs> yeah. Hang it up. Yeah. Wow. That's yeah. awesome. 
you you just had that right on the tip of your tongue of like, oh, I know exactly who it was. Wow, that's great. Um, what year was that? Would you know what her senior year would have been? She was one year behind me. Okay. So she would, I believe she would have been 2000 to 2004. Okay. Because it was that odd thing of where I started judging her. Oh, yeah. My right first year that? out. And it was always just like, hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Do I exact my revenge? Hopefully not. <laughs> no, because you're so you're good. good. Yeah. Right? It was one of those things. How I, can you? I was just watching. I'm like, yeah, I can see why you beat us all the time. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Question number three. What's the most memorable speech you've ever seen? Oh, gosh, that I've seen. Mm -hmm. Well, I think my first year coaching at Mount Sac, um, we had a student, Mike Drake, and he did an ADS on uh, why something about the time about doing a parade for veterans. And he was a veteran himself. And he talked about how veterans don't need a parade down D.C. They need services. They need help. Mm -hmm. They need this. And I remember watching him one round where he just spoke so passionately because it was something that really affected resonated him. Resonated with him. Resonated yeah. with him. And I remember it. one of the things about coaching speech, it really clicked to me at that moment that you have to find topics where the people can be like, I really truly believe this. Like, yeah. This is something I absolutely believe in. And I, I still remember the speech to this day that you know he did. And it was it was an ADS, so it was like humorous. Yeah. But there was that you know moment in main point three where it's like, all right, I'm getting serious now. And yeah. I remember when he would do that, it would just it was blow me away every time. Like, yeah, you're right. Did you ever do ADS? I feel like you would have been good for ADS. I didn't. I probably. I think I would have enjoyed doing it. But again, yeah. we didn't have a coach or oh, anything, man. so no one did. I, I wrote an actually wrote an informative my freshman year, and then never did it because I was too nervous. It wasn't right. Did you, do you still have a copy of it? Probably not. It was on hybrid cars. <laughs> like I remember the topic still, and I wrote I wrote the whole thing and practiced it, and then I remember just like I don't know if this is any good. Right, and just threw it away Aww. and type of thing. And I wish just I get was- a rough draft, Annie. <laughs> just get it out there. We'll get it up. We'll get, we'll edit it. It's still relevant, right? <laughs> yeah, right. I guess. It's still new. <laughs> uh, all right. Question number four. How do you explain forensics to someone who's unfamiliar with it? The analogy I often use is track and field. Mm. That just like, because most people know track and field, and there's running events, sprinting events, long distance events, throwing events. It's a team, but yet there's lots of individual activities that you can participate in. There's also some relays where you're part of like a duo or a trio, right? Type of thing. Um, And, but it's competitive public speaking and it's sort of the world of trying to persuade. And I sort of over the years have figured out pretty much every single event is just persuasive speaking, right? It's different formats, but even interpret, you're trying to persuade to see this, see the world a certain way or believe a certain thing or understand this character's decision. Um, so it's like, I ultimately usually pull every event down to just, you're trying to persuade them. What, what's the point you're trying to make? And I don't, not everybody agrees with that, but, um, no, I, I do agree with you. What's so funny that you say, you say that, um, AJ Moorhead was sitting right where you're sitting and he said, every event is an interp. And I think he's right too. Right. And it's so you're both right. It's like every event, when you really start looking at them, they start kind of you are interpreting and you are like even debate, right? You're, you're interpreting a little bit. You're interpreting that passion. Uh-huh. And of course, next round you're on the opposite side. And you're going, no, no, I'm very passionate now about this. Uh, and you are persuading them. And it's, it's like false persuasion, right? Like you're, you're fake persuading on a constant basis. And it obviously becomes a lot easier when you, when you do care about what you're talking right. about, when you do have that real passion behind it and you don't have to be, fake anymore you can have real emotion behind right. it and i think that's who wins right it's, it's sure it's the people who are up there believing what they're saying you can and if you they get tell. past their you know nervousness you can see that yeah and it's impressive 
That's really interesting. You know, you saw me nodding emphatically when you were talking about the track and field because I I do the same thing, and I think that's such a great easy metaphor and i'm gonna have to steal the relay because i don't think i've ever really thought about it as a relays or like duos or or mm. or readers theater as like you know a 15 person right. relay you're uh, passing the baton on yeah that's like, i like that i'm gonna have to to use that i talk, I talk about swimming sometimes too because yep. i feel like a lot of my students swim uh-huh. and i'll go oh you know uh she's doing the backstroke you're doing the right. freestyle you don't compete against each other so you know, somebody who's doing, uh, I don't know, an ADS or an informative speech is not going to be competing against a persuasive speech or something like that. Um, okay, question number five. What was your most unusual inspiration for a speech? Now, when I say that, that could be debate, could be things that you've done, or inspiration for helping to coach somebody. I don't know. what. How have you been inspired in an unusual way? Um, well, we had one student. Um, he was doing a speech about Islamophobia. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, and, and he got out of a round and the judge came up to him and, and just said, you know, thank you. I, I'd never met a Muslim before. And it was just so inspiring to have that. And he was like, I've won forensics, right? I, I didn't have to win an award or yeah. anything like that. Um, and that was very powerful because that was a time when there's a lot of Islamophobia and he felt in his own, sort of the same thing where he felt in his own life. Um, and we really went after it, right? We tackled that subject and went straight on into the issue and he gave a lot of examples of people affected by it and he gave solutions you know one of them was just come and talk to me yeah you know, like hang out with me interact with me see i'm just a person like you and the judge went and did it afterwards that's great and it was so awesome and, and he felt like he won forensics right <laughs> no trophy didn't matter yeah. anymore but it was just very um inspiring and so you know i love doing topics like that that you know that they tackle hard topics and make people think about the world a different way. That's a great segue into our next question, which is number six, has a speech ever caused you to change? Uh, let's see. Well, I definitely, I mean, this is a pub classroom speech, um, but I gave up soda for a while. Oh, really? From a speech. Um, and it was just such a persuasive speaker. Like he really persuaded me that soda is bad for you. When was this? maybe t- eight years ago, nine years. I've since picked it up again. So you gotta, gotta go hear the speech again. Um, but I remember like the logic of the argument was just so sound. What was he saying? Um, he said something about how, if you, and I hope this is true, but if you drink sugar, it's worse than eating sugar. Oh, wow. That your body processes the two differently. And if you drink sugar, you're, you know, it's bad for your body. And I remember thinking like, okay, then I shouldn't drink sugar. Yeah. And I stopped drinking soda for a year after that. And this is a speech 1A, public speaking class. When you, you popped know? open that Coke after that first year, were you like, ah, I, I missed you. <laughs> <laughs> I was having tra- a stressful day. You're I was like, traveling. Okay. And, and I remember just thinking, like, oh, I'm just going to drink. And I was like, oh. <laughs> it starts again. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> my old friend. Right. But it was You're- just one of those things where I was like, and I tell my students the example. It's like the logic of the argument was so sound to me. I had no answer. I was like, well, then I have to do this. Right? Wow, I've, I've been persuaded. I love it. Yeah. I love it. I mean, how intellectually honest of you to say, I've been persuaded, thus I must change. Yes. <laughs> so, it, didn't last, I, it lasted a year, which is pretty good. Well, but, and then the matter of convenience and taste right. pops back in. <laughs> yep. All right. <clears throat> Question number seven. What did you do with your awards? Um, I have one, mm-hmm. um, and it's the one actually. I know you've got the ballot. I've got the ballot, yeah. That one ballot. That's the only uh-huh. one I really have. Um, I have one award that's in my house. It's on my bookcase. It's the one where my wife and I were debate partners, and Aww. we won together. We got the semifinals. So we have that trophy in our house. 
The rest of them, I just gave away. You gave away? Yeah. Some of them are still at UC San Diego okay. in, a, in a case. Um, Robert Campbell sent me a picture of it. Oh, it really? It kind of cool to see. Like, it was just sitting hey, in that's a, my trophy. Yeah, sitting in a trophy case for 15 years like, down where we got a trophy <laughs> case. But the rest, I just I gave away. And when you say you gave away, how do you give them away? You, just, the you throw them away or goodwill? or yeah. okay. Or I think there was a drive to like for an urban debate league okay. to give trophies. So I remember I brought a big box in for there. But the the trophies really didn't end up having much meaning yeah. for me. It was much more the experiences and the people. Um, except it's, that one. That one is important. It's so funny because I find that most people, they're really one way or the other. I'm very interested in what kind of person are you? Are you a person who keeps your trophies or not? Yeah. And, you know, um, David Hale was like, I threw them all away. Yeah. Just threw them all. I just, who, who cares? Yeah. And then other people are like, oh, no, my mother has a shrine. And it's it's very interesting. Just not not that the one is better than the other. Right. It's just difference in, in how people view that. Right. That's yeah, so I was. I think part of it is I always saw the trophies as a way to get more funding and more mm-hmm. support. For sure. And so I'd always just give it to the administration. Right? Yeah. After a tournament, we go into the vice president's office and say, here, we won this. You can yeah. have it. Yeah. That feels good to yeah. do. It would be like, this is what you have won. Right. Uh, yeah, that's great. All right, question number eight. What speech skill do you use most often in your day-to-day life? Impromptu speaking. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I teach very off the cuff and I have a rough outline to teach from, mm-hmm. but for the most part, I try to always base it on the students' responses and, you know, what's going well in the class, what would people not understand at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and I use what I learned in impromptu every single day. Um, how to, you know, start off the class with an introduction, have like only, you know, three main points, right? Don't try to overload a class. Um, have three main things I want to try to teach that day. Do you preview your class? Pretty much. Great. Yeah. Kind of say like, okay, we're going to cover this, this, and this, and then we're going to do an activity. But I like having the flexibility where if, you know, everybody gets the first thing, I'm not going to spend too much time on it. I'm going to move on to the second thing. And if that's sort of people are hard having difficulty with, I can expand that section. And it very much is what I learned in impromptu speaking is uh-huh. you know, having main ideas, having support for those main ideas, having a big point, a summary yeah. to explain what I just taught and how it connects to the bigger class and you know what I teach in impromptu I'm doing for them every single class I don't know if students quite see that they pick up on it yeah but it's like basically I'm doing exactly what I'm teaching you every single time I teach (laughs) and so that's why I mean I I I try to get so many of my students to do impromptu because I use it every single day do you primarily teach intro classes or do you teach a lot of the forensic classes or or both I guess or so both, um, we primarily teach speech 1A, which is introduction to public speaking, the basic mm-hmm. college level public speaking class. And then I teach an argumentation debate and then the forensics classes. Okay. So that's mostly what my teaching load is. Which one of those is your favorite? Argumentation debate. Look, I, look, I love how you answer <laughs> this question so quickly. You're like, oh, I, I have the answer right here. Yeah. I love teaching debate to people, right? And it's one of those activities, one of those classes where hopefully, like, like I mentioned for the students, my passion for debate mm-hmm. comes through. Um, where you know I love the activity so much that it's so it rubs easy. off on yeah, them. Yeah, that they can see that like, whoa, he's really excited about this. Hopefully, yeah. he'll be excited about it too. And it's one of those, um, especially at Mount Sac, they have to have already taken public speaking. It's okay. a prerequisite. Right. So a lot of the students, they've already gotten over their nerves. Right. Uh-huh. They, they've given speeches. They can get up and, and deliver speeches. So then it's really just about the arguments and the structure of debate. And by you know the end of the class, they've done seven, eight, nine, ten debates, and they're really good. It's, I know it's I'm right in the middle of, of the final round and asking all these questions, but I want to drill down on this for a second because what type of what type of debate or argumentation do you teach? So I teach IPDA okay. in my debate class, and it was actually a recent shift about three years ago. I was doing NPDA parliamentary uh-huh. in my class, and I did three on three. 
in part to get more debates because uh-huh. then it'd be six students and we could do more debates. But I realized in one class that this one student wasn't participating at all, right? Their, their other two partners were really Vocal, in, into it yeah. and they were just feeding that student arguments. And I'm like, this is not good. This is not the point of the class. And so I switched over to one-on-one IPDA debate and it's been great. The students love it. And are they shorter? How, they how, are. So how long is IPDA? Um, so in tournaments, it's about 25 minutes long. Mm-hmm. But in my class, I've pulled it down to about 15. Okay. So I've cut some of the speeches in half. And one of the things I love about IPDA is there's a very specific ballot with eight criteria on it. Mm-hmm. And so we teach that ballot to the students. And it sort of gives them eight ways to sort of think about what a good debate is. And it's a lot of structure. It's, it's very straightforward. And it sort of still has that balance of different topics every debate. So mm-hmm. I like that in my class, too. I taught... Um argumentation and debate at Glendale Community College for a while. And I found that it was one of probably my favorite class as well. And I, I, I taught public forum, even though it's not really, it's not usually offered at the college level, but I found that it was a really great intro into debate. I found that it was a very, um, you know, just like, here's, here's the, of what you're thinking debate is. And I found that that public forum filled that, that need and it was small enough with a partner that you weren't just by yourself, which could be scary for some students. Right. You know, and and I would imagine, uh, IP day would have that, but I like what you're saying, which is, uh, but now I can tell whether or not you've actually picked up some of the lessons that you're saying and you can't hide behind somebody else. Right. And I think that might've been more of the three on three, like three, three Mm -hmm. teams. I think two on two is probably less of that as possible. But it's just I, this, it's such a good memory of this dude. I'm like, you're not doing anything. <laughs> like, this is not good. Or you're just coasting on your partners. So I'm like, I'm going to make you debate by yourself from now on. So. I love it. All right. So question number nine. Sorry, we had to interrupt that to, uh, to discuss some argumentation classes. Question number nine. Why didn't you quit? Because of the impact on students mm. that I have. Um, and it's funny because I had five years of final round interviews and no full-time position. And... I'd sort of told myself if I wasn't hired at Mount Sac, I was going to pursue something else. And it might've been more like computer science, like doing the website full time. Mm-hmm. And luckily I got hired at, at Mount Sac, but it's just because forensics has such a positive impact on students. Mm-hmm. And I love that part of the, my job, right? It's that within such a short period of time, that's, that's the benefit to the great thing about forensics too, is, you know, they, they, we start in September and by end of October, it's night and day yeah. with the students. They've grown so much just in, just in two months. In two months. Yeah. And then at the end of the first season, it's like, you know. Who are you? Who completely, this yeah. speaking God. Different person. Exactly. Um, and I love that. And that's why I go back every single day. And um, it's been nice. I've, I've sort of taken a little bit backseat um, coaching this last two years. Um, I'm sort of excited to jump back in it next year. Does Mount Sac have a like a rotation system. I remember hearing something about that where like you're director of forensics for uh, a year or something like that. So it's nothing formal and it's something we've been trying to build over the last couple of years um, mm-hmm. because we, I, I think I did get burned out. Um, I think two years ago I was really like at my wits end and it's really frustrated and mm-hmm. wasn't having fun as mm-hmm. much. Yeah. Um, and so it's been nice to sort of take a step back and not go to tournaments every single weekend. Um, and so we're trying to make it where it's about four or five years on and then one or two years off. And I think that's a good model. Um, Orange Coast is actually um, where we're trying to look to emulate because I think they have a very structured system where you're on for this many years, off for this many years, on for this many years. Mm. And I think it's a very valuable kind of structure to keep people sane, basically. Yeah. Um, especially if you're you know trying to win nationals. Yeah. And you're, you're really putting in so many hours. You got to refill the... Uh 
refill the the reservoir, exactly. so to speak. Yeah, yeah. and it's you know it's one of those things. This is my gosh, twenty fourth year in oh forensics or something like that. You know, yeah. and so. You gotta take a break sometimes. And come back I started in. in 1993, so I'm right okay. there with you. I've, yep. I, I've been doing it for a long time. Yep. Just think of how many uh, how many years we have. We have a, a, about 50 years worth of, of forensics between the two of us, right here, Danny. Yep. All right. This is like my last question for you, and this is my favorite question. So I save the best for last. What's the best speech advice you've ever received? I've ever received. I think it was pretend you're confident, even if you're not that as an audience member if the speaker looks confident they'll be perceived as confident and i think that was what really helped me when i was participating in debate um for my coach um, because you know of course you're nervous right it's like mm-hmm. such a nerve-wracking activity you know we do tell people oh yes i, I teach public speaking they're like what right like <laughs> you teach the thing that i am so scared about doing like how in the world would you do that yeah but if you just pretend you're confident if you just act it fake it till you make it and it really works yeah in job interviews and life you know and talking at church all these it's like i'm so nervous even now right like i'm I'm sure you as well like you know my students are always shocked when i tell them that like oh yeah i still get nervous all the time when i have to give speeches yeah but i just look confident and i just pretend to be you know what you've trained your body what to do yeah right i know how to stand still right it's hard to do but i know that that's an important skill to look confident and to speak loud, right? Like that's one of the Uh best things to do when you're nervous, just increase your volume and you'll be perceived as more confident. And I think if I can add a second corollary to that, um, it's just to get started. Get started. Um, I remember my coach telling me that was that, you know, it's, it's really nervous when you're sitting down, but if you just start and start talking, you'll get good feedback and you'll feel more confident and hopefully people will nod and make you feel more, you know, give you good feedback. And that was a very helpful advice too. You're talking about sitting down. It's so funny. I've, I've said this before to so many of my students. It's weird how if we're sitting down having a discussion, you're fine. But if you stand up and I just stay quiet, all of a sudden you get really nervous. And that's really all it is. It's exactly. just one person is standing. The other person is sitting. You might have a few other people in the room. And that's that's a speech. And you don't really think of it that way. And I don't, there, there must be something magical about our kneecaps that has all of the nervousness located in it or something. I don't get it. Um but you know you're talking about like faking it till you make it i was uh, even today i was I, I was working with a student and we were watching some ted talk speeches and we pulled one up and it was uh alex uh alex hammond i think is his name the the guy who climbed um el capitan free solo right made the documentary about him and he had done a ted talk i think last year and we were watching it and i kind of paused it about halfway through and i said what do you guys think about this speech and they said well, he's very kind of emotionally flat. And I said, yeah. And, they, and then somebody else said, he looks really nervous. And I said, I think he is. And I said, don't you find that interesting that this is a guy who has scaled a, a, one of the biggest mountains in the world, I guess, or, you know, for free solo with no ropes. And this is what's nervous for him right now. And he's, he's I'm sure, said to someone, I would rather be on the mountain than saying this speech in several in front of several hundred people and they were all kind of like yeah i'll bet he did say that and it's so interesting to kind of take a look at this like what motivates our fears and why this guy is so afraid and you can you can be a hero in so many people's eyes and do such brave things and yet public speaking everybody kind of goes whoa I, right. that's a different mountain yeah and i definitely think it's one of those things where 
you're, you're always nervous, right? Yeah. Like, even if you're win nationals, you're still nervous when you get up there. For sure. It's just not showing it. It's just not letting it stop you. Yeah. Right. I think a lot of people stop. They don't go up and give the speech because they're too nervous. And but if you can just say, you know, I'm going to pretend to be confident when I'm up there. Yeah. Like, interping, right? Everything's interp. Right. Uh, you're right. The interpret as a confident speaker. Persuasive interpretation. <laughs> That's right. Everything's the same. All right. Well, Danny, thanks so much for coming in, man. This has been uh, this has been great. And if people want to find you, I guess they how would they get in touch with you? Are you, are you on Instagram or Facebook or anything like that? Give yourself a plug. Um, probably forensicsturner.net is the best way to contact me through there. Yeah. Um, and, or Mount, my Mount Sac email. But sort of getting away from social media, to be honest. Oh. Trying to log off from a few of those things. Yeah. So. Spend some more time with the family. Exactly. Exactly. All right. Well, go to forensicsturner.net if you uh, are not familiar with that website. It's a great tabulation system. I recommend it. I love it. Danny, thanks so much. Uh, as for us, if you want to reach out to us, we are on Twitter and Instagram. Our handle there is at Forensic Podcast. Uh, Danny, thanks again one more time for coming in. And so until next round, keep talking. And as Danny Cantrell says, get started and pretend you're confident even when you aren't. I'm an actress. Oh, you're acting now Cause if you're not Somebody must show you how You got the same Funky old world charm I don't know where you come from But you're perfect for the part I don't know where you come from But you're perfect